Now, for those of you that are new, that maybe haven't been joining us over the course of this series through 1 Corinthians, let me try and catch you up to speed just a bit. Um, in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul addressed the Corinthian church's divisions over leadership. They were fighting over the leaders they had in their church. And this week, he moves on to another critical topic. Chapter 2, if you will, in the book of Corinthians, disagreements over morality, disagreements over morality. They were fighting and disputing over the right and wrong way to handle situations in their church. And he starts off with a nice light topic, church discipline. It's a sobering topic, but one that we must address. It's probably not a topic that we would address if we spent a lot of time reading how to win friends and influence people. And yet it is a thoroughly biblical topic and one that we must address as we move through this book. Hopefully that's given you enough time to find 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read all 13 verses together this morning. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore embrace the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to help us with this text. Father, I confess, as you know, that this is not a culturally acceptable message to preach. This is not an acceptable message to preach to our flesh. Apart from the work of your Spirit, this is not something that we would naturally incline ourselves toward, that we would naturally have ears to hear. And so, Father, we pray that as we study this challenging text this morning, that you would illuminate, that your spirit would help us to see the truth of your word, that you would lift up and exalt your son, that he would be the focus of our time and attention, and that he would motivate us to live with reckless abandonment for you. Lord, that we would abandon and repent of our sin and that we would turn back to Christ. Lord, give me courage to preach this with boldness and give us courage to hear it and obey it. For the sake of your Son and for your glory. Amen. There is this weed in my backyard. It's one of those sort of vining, crawling sort of weeds that spreads out 
over the course of your yard. And when it first appeared, I must confess that it was over the course of the summer, and I actually kind of appreciated the fact that it was in my backyard. As most of you are aware, we had a dry summer, and when the grass is brown, the weeds remain green. And so I went, my yard looks a little greener. Maybe this is actually a good thing. And so I left it alone. From there, I, I tried just tolerating it as it began to spread throughout my yard. I said, this isn't such a big deal. I'm sure it will be just fine. And as those of you that are familiar with the way these things go, not surprisingly, the weed continued to spread and spread and take over about half of my backyard. Finally, my wife and I came to the conclusion that we would have to remove the problem in order to address the situation. Though by that time, this weed had become a much larger and much bigger task to remove. And I wish somebody had come to me months ago at the beginning of the summer and warned me that this was going to happen. Encouraged me to take action before my entire backyard looked like a dirt pile because so much had been exposed. See, that's precisely what Paul is doing here for the Corinthian church. He's giving them a stern warning. He's speaking into their situation, and he's saying, you've got a problem. He says, there's this massive weed. There is this significant sin present and growing in your church. But rather than addressing it, some of you are actually celebrating it. Some of you are appreciating it. Others are simply tolerating it. But what you must do is remove it. What you have to do is address the problem. Now, I recognize that the subject of church discipline is a touchy one and an often misunderstood one. So we're going to do our best to address it as comprehensively as we can. We're going to address some of the potential objections and obstacles that we face to running into this, though I must confess we're in no way going to be able to cover it comprehensively in our time together this morning. But in an attempt to help you understand where we're going and why we're addressing it in the way we are, I'm going to give you my key point right up front. I'm going to give you my premise, my proposition, as we will up front so we can walk through this text together. Here it is. Faithful obedience means dealing directly with sin in the church. Faithful obedience means dealing directly with sin in the church. That's what... Paul is going to say to this church in Corinth. That is what he's trying to get them to understand. And to do that, he explains four aspects of faithfulness, four components of this. First, he says, faithfulness means grieving sin, not celebrating it. Faithfulness means grieving sin, not celebrating it. Secondly, faithfulness means addressing sin, not tolerating it. Third, faithfulness means cleansing sin, not spreading it. And lastly, faithfulness means removing sin, not confusing it. We're going to walk through these one at a time in our text here this morning. Let's start off with first that faithfulness means grieving sin, not celebrating it. He jumps right into this topic after addressing their divisions over leadership. He goes straight at the heart of this matter, and it says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you forces us to ask the question, where was it reported from? How did Paul become aware of this? Some debate over this subject, but probably it wasn't the same report that Chloe brought or Chloe's people brought to him that we talked about earlier in the book. Probably what had happened to this sin, this issue had become so public that somehow word had reached Paul in a separate city because the nature of this sin is so significant. 
He says it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that's not necessarily a surprise. That sort of thing does take place. But it's of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And so Paul had received this report. Now, what is he talking about here? Sexual immorality, this word is literally porneia, where we get the origins of our word pornography. But what it speaks to is any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. Any sexual activity that is different from God's design for our sexuality. We'll cover this more in chapter 6 when Paul really addresses the subject of fleeing sexual immorality. But suffice it to say, we have to note a couple of things real briefly before we move on here. The first is that he says this is a significant sin. In fact, it's not even tolerated among the pagans. He says the Roman and the Greek culture of the time didn't even allow for this sin. Right? It's not some small, some hidden sin. This is a rebellious, obvious, overt sin. This individual is living openly in a lifestyle that is openly rebellious, and it's obvious that they are defying God's clear command on this subject. He says this is a significant sin. He goes on to explain a little bit more about what he means. He says, for a man has his father's wife. The specific sin, the issue going on here is some form of incest. Now, from the language, it's not entirely clear what the relationship was between this man and this woman. Though what we do know is that at one point, this woman had been married to his father. Whether it's a stepmother or a, um, another sort of relationship, we're not 100% sure, but this was outlawed even within Roman and Greek culture. But more importantly than that, what you will note is the present tense of the verb. I'm not going to geek out too much here on Greek or grammar, okay? It says, for a man not had his father's wife, has, present tense, his father's wife. So this sin, in addition to being rebellious and obvious, this sin was also ongoing and unrepentant. That is critical for us to understand. When Paul advocates for the action he does, he assumes that we understand this sin is ongoing and it is unrepentant. It is an action that this individual was undertaking despite knowing what God clearly said against it. But, while Paul will pick up the subject of sexual immorality later in chapter 6, it's worth noting that though he grieves this sin here, he actually spends the rest of the chapter not chastising the individual, but he shifts and he addresses the church. The rest of his challenge is not to the person involved in this, it is to the church that is allowing this. Look at verse 2. He says, and you are arrogant. This sin is obvious, it's rebellious, it's ongoing, and it's unrepentant. You all know about it, and yet you are arrogant. Now, we know, if you've been with us over the course of this study, that this has fundamentally been the Corinthian church's flaw throughout, right? They have ongoingly showed their pride. That's why they had divisions over leadership in the first four chapters. But why would they have been arrogant? What was it that made this church arrogant? Well, it takes some speculation, but likely it's very similar to Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. Flip to the left in your Bibles real briefly to Romans chapter 6. There, addressing a different church in Rome, Paul makes what I think is a very similar argument to what he's making here in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the grace 
that we have through faith in Jesus Christ in chapters 1 through 5 in Romans, and then he comes to chapter 6 and he deals with what seems to be a potential problem or objection to his argument. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And it would seem that similar thing was taking place in this church in Corinth. People were saying, well, it doesn't really matter that there's a sin taking place in our church because God's grace covers everything, right? It's true, there is no sin beyond the grace of Christ, but to live openly in rebellion against the gospel is a major problem. And so possibly that's what was going on in this church. Their arrogance was the reason that they didn't address the problem in the church. They were so thrilled with what was going on in their church. They were so thrilled with the ministry activities and the leaders and the different things that we've talked about that they were arrogant in spite of this glaring issue in their church. And in many ways, it's kind of like today, is it not? We read a text like this and we recoil. Because we're like, I I could never be so arrogant as to call out sin in somebody else's life because I'm sinful too after all right? I can't remove the law or the speck in their eye without taking the log out of my eye first. And true enough, those are the words of Jesus, but we forget that Jesus said to remove the log so that you can help your brother, not to sit back and idly ignore what's going on in their lives. And so we claim a humility, but it's really a pretty shallow humility. And Paul calls out their arrogance here for not addressing the situation. He says you're not addressing the situation because you are arrogant. Not I'm so proud of your humility for not addressing the situation in your church. Hear me. It is arrogance, not humility, to claim that we are more gracious than God. It is arrogance not humility, to claim that we know better than what God's revealed word has taught us. And he says, and you are arrogant. Instead, ought you not rather to mourn? Verse 2, he says, ought you not rather to be mourning? Shouldn't you instead be grieving what is taking place in your church? Because when we fully recognize sin as what it is, active rebellion against a holy God, then we ought to grieve that sin. Every time we engage in a behavior that we know to be a deviation from what God's word has commanded, it is like throwing another nail into the cross and into the hands and feet of Christ. We stand there and we say, I don't care what your grace has earned me, Christ. I'm going to do my own thing. So when we see sin, whether that's sin in our own hearts or whether that's sin in another person's heart or whether that's sin in the church, we ought rather to mourn. We ought rather to grieve. Paul's point here is that we must identify and grieve sin to humble the rebellious. And that rebelliousness is present in all of us. It's not because we're super superior Christians that we address the issue in our brother's life. It's because we recognize that same seed of rebellion is present in our own heart and we don't want to see that happen to him or her. 
much like the weed in my backyard. My failure to correctly identify it as an affront on the grass in my yard led me to ignore it and to not appropriately recognize the threat it posed. And so I thought we were all good. I thought the grass looked green when in fact there was a real root of problem taking place in my backyard. Just like sin, present in our own lives, sin present in our church. We ought rather to mourn it, to grieve it, to identify it. And that means a couple of things in our own individual lives. First, that means that in order to identify sin, it requires an input of God's word. James 1, 22 through 24 says it very clearly. God's word functions like a mirror. It reflects the way we are in our sinful fallen nature. And when we see that reflection and we see the sin in our own life, we have two options. We can walk away from that mirror and do whatever we want and pretend like we didn't see it, or we can address that issue when God's word has revealed it. In order to understand what is right and what's wrong, God's real standard for morality, we must be in God's word. But secondly, it means grieving sin and loving Christ more than that sin. Now think about that for a moment. In every single one of us, there is a war being waged for the throne of our hearts. Between the sin that, let's be perfectly honest, we all love to hold on to, and Christ as the Lord of our lives. Every day there is a battle being fought in your heart, and the question is going to come down to, which do you love more? If you love Christ more, you will grieve that sin. If you love that sin more, you will grieve Christ. It means grieving our sin because we love Christ more. And then lastly, as a church, we need to consider what this means as well. And this is going to be challenged as we go forward. We must not be afraid to call sin, sin. We must never be afraid as a church to call what God calls sin, sin. Now, it's worth noting that Paul is talking primarily within the walls of the church, not primarily outside of the walls of the church. But we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Because once we have truly identified and grieved a sin that is in our hearts, that is in our church, action must be taken. Something must be done. And so we see that faithfulness also means addressing sin, not tolerating it. Paul says what they should have done, what he did, and what he's calling them to do. Look at verse 2, right? Ought you not rather to have mourned? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And we go, what? What? That can't be politically correct. That can't be welcoming. That can't be loving. Paul says, remove the man who has done this from among you meaning remove this person from participation in the church. Elsewhere in Scripture, he says, treat them as an unbeliever. Address them as if what they need most is to hear the gospel because that is what they do need most. But don't confuse the issue by making them comfortable sitting with God's people. It doesn't mean we don't interact it doesn't mean they aren't even welcome to hear the gospel preached on a Sunday morning. But he says, make it very clear that the life they're living is inconsistent with the gospel they preach. 
Let them be removed from among you. Paul addresses the issue. Even though he's separated from them, look at verse 4. He says, here's what I did. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul says, I haven't been able to be with you. If I was there in the church, I would be helping coach you through all of this. And though I'm removed from the situation, I can still see it clearly, and I have judged this individual. Those that were in the church were putting blinders on so they weren't seeing the situation for what it really was. And yet Paul, from a thousand miles away, could see, I see the situation for what it is, and I'm telling you, you have to do something. He says, though I'm absent, I am with you in spirit. I am with you through this challenging situation. And then he tells them what they need to do. Look at verse 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord. What is he talking about? This is a term that Paul is going to use consistently through the book of Corinthians. It's going to be increasingly used in the later chapters of 11, 12, 13, and 14. He says, when you are assembled, when you come together, when you gather as a church, you are to deliver this man to Satan. You are to deliver this man to Satan. You are to remove the protective influence of the church in his life. Scripture says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he takes us out when we're on our own. Paul here says, remove the protective influence of the church from this individual or turn him over to Satan. This term is only used in a few other places in Scripture. Uh, the Old Testament translation in Greek uh, it has Job, right? Remember where the story where God says, Satan, you can handle Job, but don't kill him. That's this term. It's another place that God turns some that are blaspheming over to the devil. But what we must recognize here is that even in this situation, Satan is a pawn in the hand of God, right? He says, turn this person over to Satan, let then be assaulted by Satan, but God is ultimately the one pulling the strings, right? Satan is not having his way in this situation. God is doing precisely what God wants to do through even the work of Satan in this situation. There's two reasons that they say, that Paul says to turn this man over to Satan. The first is the destruction of his body. And again, this is hard to hear. Now, there's some debate on this, whether we're talking about the sinful nature the fleshly nature that wars against the spirit in all of our hearts, or whether we're talking about the physical body of this man. I tend to believe we're probably talking the latter because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that there are those that are sick and dying in their church because they're handling each other and their relationships so poorly. But regardless, what Paul is saying here is remove the protection over this man in order for something to get his attention. If it takes a physical malady, if it takes a spiritual reality, if it takes a deep dive to hard places, it is worth it for the salvation of his spirit, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says, exercise this sort of discipline in the life of this man for his own sake. Not because you're arrogant, not because you want to chastise him, but because you care about him. 
because he needs a reality check, because he needs something to jog him out of his spiritual complacency and bring him back to obedience to the gospel and the word. He's saying that we must address sin for the purpose of saving the sinner. We must address this sin to save the sinner, to draw that person back into relationship with God, to draw them back away from their sin. Some of you are probably saying, well, what would this even look like? This is why I had Dave read, or read Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20. Turn there in your Bibles to the left to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is very specific about the way we should go about matters like this. As Dave read, it starts out with a personal offense in this situation. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now in this situation, it's some personal relational offense that's taken place in the church. A little different than the sexual immorality going on. But he says, start with a personal interaction. Start by talking to the person one-on-one, right? alone. But if he doesn't listen, verse 16, take one or two others with you that the charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, if he doesn't respond to your first entreatment, take one or two people that have seen what's going on, have noticed the actual offense, can look at the scripture and say, this is different than what you're doing. And then lastly, he says, if that doesn't work, tell it to the church, right? If he refuses to listen, even to them, tell it to the church. That is what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. These personal interactions have failed. This group interaction has failed. And now the whole church is aware of what's going on. And it's critical to note at least two things from Matthew 18 here. The first is in matters like this, where there is sin present, his priority is to keep the matter as private as possible. Start by just interacting one-on-one. And if that works, great. If not, take one or two people. That works great. And if not, then tell it to others beyond. He says, but your, if your goal is the redemption of this individual, you'll keep it as private and as, as possible. Secondly, here in Matthew, he warns to keep your own heart in check. So part of the reason we approach it this way is to prevent ourselves from falling into the same sort of sin that this person is struggling with to prevent ourselves from having a vindictive or, or superior attitude toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we go one-on-one. And if that doesn't work, we take a couple people that have witnessed it too. And if that doesn't work, we tell it to the church. That's the way he lays this out. And the reason 1 Corinthians 5 is there is because either they hadn't done one and two or it hadn't worked. And so as a church, one of the things we need to keep in mind with a text like this is this requires constant dependence in prayer. Things like this should be going on consistently in the church. Small matters of reproof and correction and encouragement, unless all of us is fully sanctified. So we need to be constantly praying for protection in these things, for clarity and understanding in these things, for boldness to say something and to have an awkward conversation with our brother and sister, and for ultimately repentance and restoration. The goal of these activities is to see that brother or sister one back. So we pray for repentance and restoration. 
But from here, Paul goes on to explain just how dangerous things like this are, just how significant them dealing urgently with this matter is. And we learn that faithfulness means cleansing sin, not spreading it. Look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Again, truer words have never been spoken. Your boasting is not good. How can you be boasting when this is present in your church? And then he gives them an illustration, an illustration that would have been familiar, especially to the Jewish audiences, of the idea of the Passover celebration, leaven and unleavened bread. Let me read it, and then we'll walk through it and explain it. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He gives us three pieces to this illustration. First of all, he talks about the corrupting effect of sin in a church. He talks about the leavened bread. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I'm not overly familiar with baking, and I expect that many of you are more than I am. We don't use leaven today. We use yeast, right? And the yeast is what makes the bread puff up. It's what makes the bread rise and all that sort of thing, right? And so you put a little bit of yeast into it, and it works its way through the dough, and then slowly your rolls or your cinnamon rolls or whatever the case might be start to rise. But one of the things that is undeniable about this is that the leaven spreads. The leaven will work its way through the entire lump of dough. That's precisely Paul's point here. He says, sin spreads. None of us sin in isolation. Most of us have a tendency to be convinced that I've got my own little sin in this area of my heart over here, and as long as I don't tell anybody else, it's not going to affect anybody else. Paul's point here is that in a body, in a church, sin spreads just like leaven spreads. And in addition to that, sin defiles. Sin defiles. The whole ritual that took place in the Jewish culture at that time is leading up to Passover, there was this ritualistic cleansing of all leaven from their house. And they would go through and they would search the whole house and they would make sure they got rid of all the leaven so that when they celebrated the Passover feast, there was no leaven in the whole house. Because leaven made the house unclean and they couldn't celebrate Passover. That's the same thing here. Paul's saying the sin being present in your church is defiling your whole church. It's not a private sin. It's not a private matter. It is a public reality and it hurts and defiles the church. But then he can't help but talk about the atoning death of Christ. Look back at verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He talks about Christ's substitutionary sacrificial death on our behalf. Much like in the Passover celebration where at one point in the, or in the, in the celebration, they would have put to death the Passover lamb. They would have killed that lamb to celebrate the fact that it died rather than them. To remember the Passover in Egypt, where rather than the firstborn of all the Israelites being killed, those that put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts were saved from that death that the Egyptians experienced. So he says Christ is just like that Passover lamb. Christ has offered his death on our behalf for our sin freely. He is the perfect substitute dying in our place the judgment of God that rightly should have fallen on us instead fell on Christ. He sacrificed himself on our behalf to put to death the very sin that you are arrogant and boasting about. This is consistent with Paul's overall theology everywhere. 
He doesn't say, shape up your life and then come to Christ. He says, Christ saved you from a life of death. Now live that way. This Christ's atoning death has happened on your behalf. Ultimately, to purify you, and we see the purifying result of salvation. He goes on in verse 8 with this illustration. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, not with this leaven of divisive spirits and contentiousness and fighting and allowing sin to take place within your church. Instead, be what you are. Live the way you are with this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Like Ephesians 4 talks about truthing in love, right? It's critical for us to note because it's easy to lose in our culture today. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us not only from the penalty of sin, but from its practice. The gospel that we claim that saves us from the penalty of God's wrath is also to purify us like unleavened bread here, to make us into a people that is holy and blameless and living for God. And what he's saying is, this situation is defiling the church. This situation is spreading throughout the church. And this situation is undermining the gospel that you preach. And there's only two ways that this can be cleansed from your church. Way number one, repentance. Way number two, removal. It says this only ends in one of two ways. Either the individual turns from their sin returns to Christ and repents of it, or you have to remove them from the church. Which is also an important thing to note as well. Because there's a tendency to over-exercise this in some churches too, is there not? To get overly excited about doing things like this and to forget that the process ends with repentance. The minute the person repents and turns back to Christ, we all celebrate. It's not about getting even. It's not about making them pay. It's not about whatever else we might think it's about. It's about bringing them to a point of repentance. And that's what we pray for throughout this whole process. But we must recognize that we must cleanse sin to protect the body. Allowing sin like this to fester in a church will result in more and more people being defiled and hurt by it. Much like the weed in my backyard, the failure to address it when it was a small seed resulted in it spreading throughout my entire yard. That means as individuals, we need to be constantly, personally repenting of our sins addressing things in our own heart while they're still just the seed of an issue. Addressing things before they become full-blown, overt, obvious, rebellious, upfront sins in our lives that other people can't help but see. So we constantly be coming back to Scripture saying, God, illuminate where I'm missing things. Illuminate what I'm missing because I am just as capable as anyone of sinning. Or as David said, right? Reveal the sin in my heart. Show me the sins I'm unaware of. 
But as individuals, it also means resisting the spread of sin. Each one of us has to be on our guard against things like this continuing to spread within a church body, willing to address issues as they come up, not suffering from the same sort of arrogance that the Corinthian church had where he said, well, I don't really know how to do that. But as a church, we need to be constantly pleading for repentance, pleading for repentance in every single one of us, Because but for the grace of God, every single one of us would walk away from God. Every single one of us, faced with the reality of our sin, would say, I love that sin more than I love Christ. And so we have to be constantly pleading with God to give us the illumination to see our sin and the willingness to repent of it. Whether it's small in our own private hearts or whether it's become obvious to the church. And then we find ourselves in the most sobering step of all. If necessary, it means removing the person from the church. And we see that faithfulness means removing sin, not confusing it. Removing sin, not confusing it. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. And you're like, what, what letter? Isn't this 1 Corinthians? Okay, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. There was another letter. We don't have it. We don't know precisely what Paul wrote. It wasn't inspired, so we're not overly concerned about it. But at the very least, he addressed this issue of sexual immorality. And at some point, the Corinthian church had gotten confused. They'd be like, okay, he says, don't associate with sexually immoral people. So we're going to remove ourselves from the world. Right? We're just going to get in our holy huddle, and we're going to avoid the stains of sin in the world. Well, Paul clarifies for them. He says, I'm not talking about outsiders. Look at verse 9 and 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I love Paul's comment here. It's like, this should go without saying, guys. I didn't mean to hide from the world because there's a reason God didn't just take you up to heaven the minute you were saved. He says, it's not calling to isolation as a church. It's not calling to hiding as a church and protecting ourselves from everything else. The church has erred in this way. The monastic movement was an example of this. Let's go build monasteries and just hide from the world and then we'll be unstained by sin. Paul's saying, that's not what I'm talking about because that's impossible. How are you to be salt and light in your world if you never impact it? Paul didn't say hide from the world. He said, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then your, your, your job isn't to judge the outsiders. Your job isn't to be overly concerned with what's outside the church. Instead, what you need to look at is what's inside the church. Look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I said you removed yourself from the outside world, but you aren't addressing what's inside the church. Saying, instead, I'm telling you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, who professes and claims to be a believer. I want you to break formal association with that person if they haven't responded in repentance. And he lists off six lifestyles that are characterized by unrepentant sin. Sexual immorality, right? Again, we're going to talk about that later. There is a higher standard for God's people when it comes to sexual morality. 
And we have a tendency to ignore that in the 21st century. Because if a life is characterized by sexual immorality, a life that is characterized by greed, doing anything for money, all of us struggle on some level with greed, but he's talking about overt, out there, rebellious sins, doing anything for money. An idolater, living for this world. A reviler, someone that is verbally hateful, abusive, and slanderous of other people. It's interesting that he says drunkard here. The habitual overconsumption of alcohol is one of the things that he says that's an obvious rebellious sin. Then lastly, swindlers, those who seek to cheat others. His point is engaging in those lifestyles as a habit betrays your confession of faith. Your behavior reflects badly on Christ. Living this way in open rebellion totally defies the very repentance with which we came to Christ in the first place. So if there are those within the church that continue to do that and they've been approached again and again and they're living in obvious, unrepentant, rebellious sin, you need to break association with them. I love the way he puts it in verse 12. For what have I to do with outsiders, with judging outsiders? Well, the obvious answer is nothing. That's not what he's talking about here. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Precisely. I love the way Alistair Begg puts this. He says, sin outside the church is not nearly so dangerous as sin inside the church. But for many of us, our preoccupation is more with the sin outside the church than with the sin inside the church. We are so consumed with what we see outside the church that we forget that God is going to take care of that. We are called to address sin inside the church. Paul charges them to focus more internally than externally. He says, God judges those outside the church. Purge the evil person from among you. Address the sin inside your church. Paul's argument is that we must remove sin to distinguish the church. To make clear the difference between those that are of the church and those that aren't. It's amazing how once I began removing the weed from our backyard, the damage and the difference was obvious. The minute I pulled that weed out, obviously it was very clear, this is a weed, this is grass. And this is the damage it's done to my grass. Now what Paul is not saying here is he's not saying that we know the ultimate heart and condition of someone's personal profession of faith. That is up to God. We never know that. But what we are saying to each other when we engage in this sort of removal from the church is your life makes me question whether or not you really believe what you say you believe. And I am afraid for your soul. I am so scared for you and for what that means for your heart condition that I cannot just leave you alone in your sin. He says, remove them from the church for their sake, but also to make it clear to the world what we do believe. When the church begins to look exactly like the world around us, what right would we have to speak into the way they live? And so ask yourself the question, 
do I look different? Do I look genuinely distinct from the world around me? Are there areas in my own heart and my own life, sins that I need to root out before they become bigger issues? And as a church, what we must recognize is the clear command of God in his scriptures. It means at times, in a loving, humble way, removing ongoing and unrepentant sin from the church. We must not shy away from what God's word teaches. It's not an easy thing, and it shouldn't be. It's not an arrogant thing to obey God's word. It's an obedience thing for the good of that person, for the glory of Christ, for the sake of the church. So I come back to my initial key point, which hopefully I've proved to you from 1 Corinthians 5. Faithful obedience means dealing directly with sin in the church. We must or it becomes the sort of issue that we see here in 1 Corinthians 5. If we care enough about sin as rebellion against God, we must identify and grieve it. If we care enough about our brothers and sisters in Christ to notice the sin in their lives, we must address it. If we care enough about the purity of the church, we must protect it. And if we care enough about the lost, and our corporate witness to them, we must remove sin when necessary as well. Let's pray. Father, we lament the fact that in every single one of us, personally and in us as a church, we still struggle with indwelling sin. None of us is above it. None of us is beyond it. None of us is immune to it. Every single one of us possesses the nature to live in utter defiance and disobedience to you. And Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent your son to die on our behalf to save us from the penalty of our own sin. But we also praise you that you sent your son to die on our behalf to purify us from the practice of sin. You intend for your bride, the church, to be blameless and without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Give us a passion for holiness. Give us a zeal for living in obedience to what your word teaches. Lord, help us to be involved in each other's lives in such a way that when things are still small, we see them and we help bear each other's burdens and walk each other back to the truth of the gospel and repentance but Father, also give us the boldness when that has to happen, to step in as a church, to call sin, sin, and to humbly, obediently, faithfully address the sin in our midst. For the sake of those in the world that are watching us, that are wondering why we're different, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.